Thank you for downloading this episode of A History of Central Florida podcast. This is the podcast where we explore Central Florida's history through the artifacts found in local area museums and historical societies. This series is brought to you by Riches, the regional initiative to collect the histories, experiences, and stories of Central Florida, and the Orange County Regional History Center. I am Chip Ford, and I will be your host for today's episode, Surfboards. In this episode, we will explore four surfboards used in the Daytona Beach area throughout the 20th century. When you imagine surfing and surf culture, it is easy to picture these leisure activities throughout the beaches that stretch along the vast coastline of Florida. Surfing started in the Pacific, around the Polynesian Islands, which includes Hawaii. In 1909, Collier's National Weekly ran a story titled, Riding the Surf in Hawaii which brought the attention of this sport, originally enjoyed by the native peoples of the region, to Americans. Throughout the 1910s, locals and tourists took to the beaches to ride waves by way of their own bodies, known as belly boarding, or by lying flat on pieces of wood, and eventually standing up with both feet flat on a wooden board. Paul Aho, author of Surfing Florida, tells us about these early efforts. There was a small cadre of surfers in a number of key locations. Daytona Beach, again, before World War II, had uh, what's considered to be as many as 50 regulars surfing in its waters. Uh, The war certainly changed that. that By the end of the war, there were really only, or during the war, there were really only two surfers um, known to be surfing in Daytona Beach and certainly far fewer anywhere else in the state. Um, Golden Reed and Dick Avery were two from Daytona Beach that surfed throughout the war, um, and were on hand uh, as the sport sort of rebirthed after the war and um, soldiers returning and the new technology and such. But um, primarily, the, the first surfers, the first real surfers in Florida are credited to be the Whitman brothers, Dudley and Bill Whitman and Stanley Whitman out of Miami. And, of course, they made road trips. They were uh, students at University of Florida, and they would venture to Daytona Beach and uh, became friends with surfers who were picking up the sport there as well. But um, generally they're considered the first true surfers, the first people that actually lived a surfer's lifestyle and were sort of dedicated to the sport in the fashion that we think of surfers being dedicated today. The, the earlier surfers, these um, people that were pioneering this, sort of picked this up out of um, articles in Harper's um, or Collier's magazine. And, uh, you know, there were plans available how to build your own hollow board uh, that were available as early as 1937 out of Popular Mechanics magazine. Dr. Mark Long from the University of Central Florida explains how these boards, first used by native people on the Polynesian Islands, were later adapted to fit the tastes of Florida's leisure population. But originally they were all wood planks, uh, and the, I mean, traditionally they were, I mean, very traditionally, right, beginning back in their Polynesian roots, they were made of particular wood reserved for royalty. So only royals could surf, uh, and they had trees that were that were to be cut only for royal surfboards. So when it comes to the state as a, as a recreation rather than as a religious practice, um, it, they are initially all made of wood as well. And there's a transition from wooden boards to composite boards. It's a huge difference in terms of how the board uh, is usable because of the weight. Wooden surfboards are extremely heavy. 
uh, they're heavy in the water, but even more importantly, they're heavy to to, to lug around. Um, so, and they're also quite long. I mean, we have we have images of surfers on the beach in in Daytona from the 1930s with 12, 13 foot surfboards um, you know, towering above the heads of the surfers. Although these early surfers represented a young and burgeoning sport, they traveled great lengths to become proficient. Paul Aho tells us about the 1930s and 40s when people like Golden Reed, Dick Avery, and the Whitman brothers, Bill and Dudley, traveled far and wide to surf, including surfing in Hawaii with the famous native Hawaiian surfer Duke Kanamoko. Um, these hardcore guys, like we know that um, Golden Reed and and Dick Avery actually traveled to Hawaii along with the Whitman brothers on, on different ventures on their own accord. So there were people that were doing this quite seriously and uh, with a great deal of dedication. Uh, there were others out of the Palm Beaches as well. So there were a group of people around the state who were, you know, hardcore surfers as early as the, um, 1934. So the, again, the Whitman brothers were known to have surfed with uh, Duke Anamoko and at the Waikiki Club, and and, uh, and we know that Golden Reed and uh, Dick Avery did, uh, along with a couple of um, surfers from the Palm Beaches as well. When the sport gained some modest momentum, people made surfboards by hand. They were inspired by the board they saw in Hawaii and brought those designs back to the States. Paul Aho tells us about one of these early boards built by Golden Reed in 1936. This board was built again by Golden Reed, who was a pioneer of the sport. So you have an example of a Golden uh, Reed uh, hollow Blake-style surfboard. So the yellow surfboard that we see with the long board with a very narrow tail is a board that's constructed out of, uh, generally out of balsa wood, with a ribbed core and a plywood um, sheath over the top of it, which was then traditionally finished in varnish. This board has certainly been... um, repaired and, um, and rehabilitated. I mean, I don't, I highly doubt that it was yellow when it was, um, first it would have been like the other board, like the, um, this um, handmade birchwood board would have been varnished. So that, that long board is, has a hollow core. Uh, plans for that were, um, again, as I mentioned earlier, there were uh, plans of that were available through Popular Mechanics. And as I have read through interviews with people from the Daytona area, there were as many as 90 such surfboards built in the high schools um, of Mainland and Seabreeze High School in Daytona Beach in shop classes by young men who wanted to pick up the sport of surfing. Tom Blake was a surfer in the 1920s and 1930s that traveled to Hawaii and learned of the native people's historic hollow body design. He soon adapted that to the boards he built and eventually he added a fin to the bottom. Paul Aho tells us about the two Birchwood-designed boards based on Blake's designs used in 1948 in Ormond Beach. So we've moved from the yellow board, which is the Golden Reed uh, Tom Blake-style hollow surfboard, to this solid wooden core board that somebody made in the Ormond Beach area. This particular surfboard had a hollow core with an airplane wing-type rib system inside to support a plywood skin, as is the board that's underneath it. With So you've got the board up top with a traditional skag, a fin on it, and the one down below has this sort of rudder-like keel on it. Those are different, very different generations. Finally, 
The last board was a long board that is different from the previous boards and represents the most recent advent to surfboard construction. This surfboard was built in 1963 from foam and fiberglass by George Miller out of his store, the Daytona Surf Shop. Paul Aho explains. And then instrumentally we would move to the next surfboard, which is this foam and fiberglass construction that we see, which is made by George Miller. So George was, along with um, Jack Murph, the Surf Murphy, and another gentleman named um, Jim Campbell. Uh, Jack Murphy and Jim Campbell were both Californians who came to Florida and built surfboards early on. Uh, George Miller was actually living in Hawaii and moved back to Florida in 1960 and started building surfboards in Miami and in 1962 moved to uh, North Florida and started building boards under a number of different labels, but ultimately uh, sort of branded this Daytona Beach Surf Shop Custom Surfboards by Miller. He was a guy who, unlike uh, Jack Murphy and Jim Campbell, had a very high production uh, facility. He built as many as 80 surfboards a week um, in the early 1960s in uh, Daytona Beach. So this surfboard would be a large polyurethane foam blank, which would be shaped with a planer by hand. Um, it has a wooden stringer down the middle to provide um, longitudinal stability to make the board rigid and uh, so that it wouldn't as readily break, and then coat it with um, different weights of fiberglass cloth. The 1950s marked the next big change to the sport with the advent of beachwear. Surfing opened up new markets in beachwear, boards, automobiles, and equipment. With the increase in advertising, surfing spread farther and farther. The 1960s saw the film and music industry's involvement with the surfing craze. Radios blasted the odes to surfing in summer from the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean, while films like Where the Boys Are in Endless Summer caused surfing to explode and expand. Through the next few decades, surfing would continue to play a role in coastal communities. With the money and interest generated by the sport, beaches continued to find new markets. Dr. Long tells us how youth culture played a role in this economic expansion of surfing. But really, in the 19, late 1950s and then through the 1960s, the emergence of, of, a, youth, of a youth culture, uh, particularly from the baby boom generation, uh, the beginnings uh, later of, of spring break, which began, you know, in the same period, uh, which is not surfing per se, but it's linked to beach culture. And this idea of surfing becomes, in that sense, as much a sort of condensed symbol of libidinous freedom, right? The freedom to be, for men, you know, bare-chested in public, which was not the norm in the 1950s. Uh, and for women to wear bathing suits that are increasingly sort of shocking to an older generation. Um, so even if they're not surfing, surfing becomes this kind of potent symbol of this broader transformation in youth culture uh, and to this sort, of, uh, you know, this sort of focus on both leisure uh, and sexuality. With the advent of boards like those designed by George Miller, it democratized the sport by making the board lighter, mass-produced, and cheaper. Paul Aho describes for us these changes. Um, the shortboard revolution of the late 1960s and early 1970s revolutionized the sport again. So the surfboards went from this sort of long board, this nine-foot length, 
down to six feet or seven feet in the matter of, you know, really in the matter of several months. The sport was completely revolutionized, and um, these surfboards became obsolete and um, were, weren't used for many, many years. We've seen the rebirth of longboarding again with the modern longboard that took place in the 1980s or late 1980s and certainly is going as strong as ever. There's, the water is certainly shared today between shortboarders and longboarders in pretty even numbers. It certainly represents a major cultural shift in the sport as well because surfboards became readily available. They were light enough for people to transport, to carry to the beach and to use much more readily. So surfboards went from being 100 pounds apiece to, like the Golden Reed surfboard is about 100 pounds, I suppose, down to you know 18 or 20 pounds and then lighter and lighter yet as the technology got better. Although the beaches in Florida have been a magnet for tourists dating back to the days of Henry Flagler's railroads and hotels, it is the surfboard that helped to create a culture around the beach. You could even say a community of travelers. Paul Aho leaves us with his belief about what surfing means. Well, I think it's completely consistent with the lifestyle choices that people seek um, um, as a reason to move to Florida. It's an outdoor lifestyle. It's, um, it's a healthy sort of water-oriented activity that um, everybody can participate in. I think that the technology is reasonably um, simple. You have a surfboard, you ride away with a surfboard. That's pretty fundamental activity. Uh, this notion of riding waves is, uh, I think, sort of phenomenological. It's kind of... Uh, you know, people think of surfing in terms of sport, and they think of surfing in terms of spiritual activity. And you know, the water is shared between people who um, compete and those who see surfer as some sort of surfing as some sort of calling and some way of communing with nature. So that's another side of the sport that um, you know that's been in and out of vogue and fashion over the decades. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of a History of Central Florida podcast. For more information about the surfboards featured in this episode, please visit the Halifax Historical Museum at 252 South Beach Street, Daytona Beach, Florida, 32114. Make sure to join us for our next episode titled Highwayman Paintings.